You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Daryl Blocker, who spent the last three and a half decades working in the national security intelligence field, most of that with CIA. As a career operations officer, he spent time as chief of station or deputy chief of station in several capacities, and was chief of base in a war zone. From 2010 to 2013, he was deputy chief and then chief of the interagency training center, which we might call a different name, but he can't. And in 2013, Daryl was made the Deputy Director of the Counterterrorism Center, and then in 2014, the Chief of the Africa Division at CIA. There's a lot more to talk about, but let's do that within the conversation. So welcome, Daryl. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us at SpyCast. Thank you for having me. It's always interesting to hear my career being spoken to and, uh, you know, sensitized down into such a small thing. It's still uncomfortable a little bit, but... I mean, anyone talking about what you've done is a little (laughs) uncomfortable. You're not that removed. Yes, uh, from is. the world. Well, let's let's now go in the Wayback Machine okay. and, and talk about the kind of the beginning of your career, even pre-CIA when you're looking at the Air Force, and kind of a big question about what brought you to the world of intelligence? What was the draw? And, and let me predicate this question by saying, to be frank, this, this wasn't a time where there's a significant amount of minority representation within the intelligence community. It's not the 50s, right? but there's still, it's nowhere near what it is today. At all. But I'm a second-generation intelligence officer, and between my brother, my father, and myself, more than 60 years in the intelligence community serving our nation. So my brother and father were both NCOs in the Air Force, working SIGINT, or Signals Intelligence Issues. And I believe that, I don't know if it had a major impact on me, but I know all the coffee mugs in my house growing up had, like, secret agent guys with headphones on and, you know, cloak and dagger I was a Cub Scout, I was a Boy Scout, I was an ROTC in high school and college, um, and then I joined the Air Force myself and was an analyst. Um, so I enjoyed the collection part, I mean I enjoyed the analytical part of it, but um, when I got the opportunity to be an actual collector of intelligence and answering a newspaper ad of all things to write a 1500 word or less essay on anything that you felt strongly about. Um, I wrote about the uh, the Intifada, the Palestinian uprising. The first one was happening at that time, late 80s. And someone saw that I could put a sentence together and that, you know, I had reasoned, you know, reasoned thought and a series of, you know, emails and let actually letters and emails didn't exist outside of the DARPA. Um, um, project so answered the ad and took a battery of tests and a year and a half later moved from austin texas uh to northern virginia was there was there a specific point 
in your career that you can look back and point to where you went from this could be an interesting job or this is kind of following in my father's footsteps to this is going to be my career like was there a point in which you said i can do this for the next 30 years so when you walk in the door at cia in the in the early 90s all the briefers that were talking to us like oh yeah 20 years from now and you're, you're talking to 22 to 25 year old kids and you're saying you know 20 25 years from now when you retire and all of us are looking at each other like, I don't know if yes. I'm gonna be here for that long. I think I was probably on my third tour in West Africa where I started to realize that it started to coalesce. Mm -hmm. All the things that I had been taught um, started to make sense and I was like, not only can I do this, I think I can do it really well. So I didn't recruit in my first tour. I didn't recruit in my second tour, which for an uh, officer and the director of operations means I was a failed case officer by all measures. But there was something about Senegal and it had to do with the, the boss that I had there at the time, um, who's still a family friend. It had to do with where my kids were in their life, you know, in school. And there is just something magical about being in, uh, in Senegal. So, that for me is kind of the the tipping point of when I recognize that yep I enjoy traveling because I was a military brat I grew up in the hill of the boot Italy Okinawa Japan served in Korea myself so traveling was a huge part of something that I wanted to do mm -hmm. and I wanted my kids to grow up in different cultures learn different languages and recognize that as great as a nation we have there are a lot of great countries out there and I wanted them to, to be a part of that you might not be able to talk about this. Um, were you there under official cover, or were you a knock? I was. I was never a knock. I only worked official cover, State Department, uh, from the beginning of my career till I retired in October of 2018. And did your kids know what you did? At what point did your kids learn what you did versus being a State <clears throat> Department person? So that's a really, really interesting. Um, it's up to the officer right. to decide when they tell their children if they ever decide to tell their children what, what they do. So my son was very young, um, in fact, too young to actually even utter the three letters. And my daughter was about five years older. Um, she was 12, about to turn 13, and very, very, very much like her father in terms of asking questions. Where are you going? Who are you going to see when you coming home? You know, when I was about to you know, launch on my, my surveillance detection route en route, en route to my meeting, and I knew she was just at the point where she was gonna ask the wrong question in the wrong crowd. Right. I was the station chief in that particular location, and I just said, you know what, it's time to have the talk. So uh, we planned a father-daughter uh, outing, and we, we go there the next day, and we're there about three or four days away from going back to the States for the summer. The family would always leave without me because I couldn't get away for, you know, four or six weeks at a clip. So they would always go first, and then I would join them, and we would come back together. And I knew they were about to leave, and I wanted to tell her when she was going to be outside of the country we're in and have time to let it all sink in and think about think back through her whole career or through my career, but her, her living it. So we're, we're eating, you know, we're, walk, we're at our favorite little cafe, called the Crocodile Cafe, and got to the point in the conversation where I, th that opening was there. So I lean in and I say, you know, Dad brought you here because he really wanted to, you know, share something with you. And she just got the most, the saddest, I can close my eyes and see it now, the saddest look on her face. And she said, you and Mom are getting divorced. Oh. <laughs> and I look at her and I say, well, not unless you know something that I know, but uh, no, what makes you think that? And she said, well, all my girlfriends who said, oh, yeah, if your dad says you got to have a father-daughter uh, meeting, it's not going to be good news. I said, no, baby, it's, it's not that. We're fine. And I said, but, and then I said, this is who I am. This is who I work for. And she just looked at me like, mm, I don't believe you. And I was really prepared for it any response except, except for, for <laughs> I don't believe you so um and I was stuck and, and she had a little flip phone and I remember it was banana yellow and I said okay your mom knows why we're here 
So you can call her, but the only thing you can say is, is it true, yes or no? That's it. And then hang up the phone. So she calls and she's looking at me askance. And she says, really? Then she hangs up the phone and immediately starts looking around the cafeteria that we've been in for 30, 45 minutes at this point. And she just, and I said, honey, honey, the only thing that's changed in the last 30 seconds is you know Nobody else in this restaurant knows. They don't care. Stop looking spooky. Now you're making things a little a little uncomfortable. And then immediately she looks at me and she says, was it dangerous? Same question that my son had asked five years earlier, and I'll get to Josiah in a minute. And I didn't tell him the truth. There are dangerous aspects mm. to the job, but I never, ever felt in danger outside of Mogadishu. Um, but anyway, she's, she's, she's looking at me and I could see the wheels turning. And she says, oh, so that means, and then she ripped off the name of five or six of my classmates from the farm and people who had worked in station said, oh, that means they're CIA too. And I look at her and I said, well, honey, I told you you could ask me anything, but we can't talk right. about other people. So she sits back and she gets this, really like satisfied looked on her face and she said that means yeah <laughs> and she was spot on she named yeah. by name five or six people in a row almost immediately so clearly she had been thinking about right. it and now it just all made sense to her so she was like i said 12 about to turn 13. now josiah completely different story now josiah is very very contemplative really really bright kid who at two years old was reading and um, we knew he was smart and one day um, the nanny had gone home for the day and the ex was at a board meeting or something anyway I was stuck in the house and I get a call from a, I get a meeting triggered by an agent and I have to I can't leave a five-year-old in a or a seven-year-old in a five-year-old in a house alone so I grab the kids, throw them in the back of the car, go out, do my meeting, get back and uh, run upstairs, put Olivia back in the bed, come back downstairs, and Josiah is sitting there looking at me. He said, Daddy, why you give that man and then named what I passed? And I said, well, you know, we've been having trouble with ours and he gave us this one so we could, but he's looking at me like, mm, no, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and he says, well, why were we on Yaya Street? Like we weren't in Yaya's neighborhood. He's like, yes, we were, and we were. I had a I had a car site. I had a meeting site that I could never use again, obviously, because this seven year old is has figured out that dad was doing something, and so I said, okay, you got questions? Just just ask me the question. He said, you're not like the other dads at the embassy, and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, all my other friends that are Americans, their dads aren't out four or five nights a week. And he literally started all the things that a trained collector is supposed to protect from the Russians, the Chinese, yeah. the, the local service. This seven-year-old had them all just do, 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 do. And the first thing I thought is, I must really suck at this <laughs> because a seven-year-old has figured it out. But he was a smart seven-year-old. Right. So I said, just ask me. And he said, is it dangerous? And I said, no, it's not dangerous. You, your mom and your sister are fine. And he says, well, are you going to come home from your meetings every time? And I said, well, the reality is anybody could die any time, but don't worry about it. You're, you're seven. You shouldn't be thinking about things like that. But he was seven and my daughter was 12. Now, I do not recommend ever any CIA officer revealing to a seven-year-old that you work for CIA. I never said CIA. I answered the questions he asked. You're absolutely right. Dad is not like the other fathers. Right but people are putting their lives in my hands and me talking to a seven-year-old doesn't make them any safer. So you can never have this conversation with anyone. He will be 30 this year. He has not had that conversation with his mom, who he knows know, or with his sister, who he knows know. He just, he just, he knows that dad said, you never talk about it and you never talk about it, so. Yeah, well yours was a, yours was a family affair with your brother and your father. Did either of your kids contemplate following you into the business? <laughs> Um, we raised two vegetarian hippies. Um, 
One is an artist in Seattle and the other is a social worker in Chicago. Their politics are not my politics, um, but that's how we raised them, to question authority, to push back, to, mm, to look at things and say, mm, what's the other side of the story that we might not be seeing? But I never imagined that they would turn the tables on their old man and, and put me in the hot seat and, and make me question, you know, through the eyes of, you know, adults now. And those are still tough questions to answer. But I have explained to them and anyone else that's willing to listen, I was never asked to do anything that was against my moral or ethical upbringing. I'm a Georgia boy, a southerner. We're really proud on character integrity and a handshake is what you need. Mm -hmm. We don't need to sign a contract. If I look you in your eye and say I'm going to do something, then the expectations are that it's going to be done. So that was, I said, just remember whatever you've heard about CIA, it's not the full story and you know who your father is and you know how you were raised. So just keep that in mind when you're, when you're contemplating your, your, your negative thoughts about the institution that fed and, and housed you and clothed you for your entire life. They didn't like that last part of it, but. <laughs> well, there's a place for vegetarian hippies within the agency, even that. <laughs> there is, and there are some. Yes. Well, let me, let me ask you the, kind of the question uh, that I ask of a lot of people who read upper management. You rose up the chain to the middle and then upper management. Did it become less fun as you went higher? I mean, uh, was it difficult to remove from the day-to-day um, and it was difficult trusting people to do the jobs that you did so well before. I mean, people don't reach the level you did without being good right. at what they did. The, the tough part was when you went from the bullpen, where you're sitting down with the other case officers and, and the SUs and the CMOs, our, um, our other core collectors, and you're part of the, you know, you're discussing how you're going to go about you know, executing this mission or whether you should at all. And then walking in the room as the first time, you know, manager and everybody going quiet. And we're like, oh, no, no, keep talking. Like, no, you're the, basically you're the man now. And until we're ready to present this, you know, this, you know, quasi complete package to you, you know, radio silence, that was a punch in the gut. That was my first job as manager chief of base in in West Africa and at the end of that tour the agency sent me to leadership training after after after, afterwards right and a part of that had to do 360 feedback where your management back in Washington your peers in the field and the subordinates or the direct ports that reported to you all had a say in how you performed as a as a first-time leader well, during this course, and I won't give away the, the details of it, but there's a reveal on day four of the course that uh, these observers who you think are instructors are really clinical psychologists whose job was to look at the information that they had of you and see whether it matched with the feedback that came from the 360 feedback. So on Thursday, Thursday morning, my, my guy, my clinical psychologist looks at me and he says, are you ready to listen? I'm like, yeah, of course I'm ready to listen. I just come back, just mid, been promoted to GS-14. I was going from being a base chief to a, to a DCOS or a deputy chief of station, so I knew I was the man. Well, I wasn't the man. I was, and it's still even a little painful to talk about, and this was 2002, so 18 years ago, but I knew when that feedback came in that the person I thought I was was not the person that I was to the other folks that really mm-hmm. mattered. And it was a turning point. It was, it, was, it was cathartic. I think I became a better father. I know at the time, and I'm divorced now, but I know I became a better husband and a better boss because I learned how to listen. And I don't think I was listening before. And um, it, was, it was painful. Yeah, It was painful in the sense that I had always, you know, bright student, you know, accolades. And at some point you start to believe your own press and you stop maybe not trying as hard, but you're just kind of coasting. And coasting isn't what's going to get you to the top ranks of the agency. And so as a part of that process, they had 
audio tapes, which nobody has audio tapes anymore or, or audio player in their car. But the tapes, along with the feedback, were given to you on how to improve on the areas where they felt that you could you, you could improve in. And for a year, stuck in traffic, listening to you know to and from work, because I had come from West Africa back to the to the states for a year before going back out. I listened to these tapes. That's I didn't listen to radio. I didn't listen. I didn't listen to anything. I just learned how to improve. I got every book that I could possibly buy. Um, Daniel Pink, Brene Brown, anything that had to do with leadership, I was reading it because I knew I wanted to be. I knew the people that I looked up to within the agency that seemed to do it so seamlessly and and effortlessly, and I didn't want to be carbon copies of them, but I did want to be. I wanted to be known as a recognized leader within the institution, and being a black leader on top of that is even more significant. Which I've always, you know, I, I, you know, people say I wear my blank on my sleeve. Well, I wear my color on my sleeve and on my hands and my arms and my face. It, it's who I am. Right. But I didn't know that it made all that much difference to the people who were looking up and saying, "Oh, okay, we can." rise up to you know be a gs-15 or maybe even make it in an sis ranks um and that's all i ever wanted to do was be a gs-15 that was my goal walking in the door because my dad was a you know he was an enlisted guy and a colonel you know you should be a proud to be a colonel and i walked out the door as a three-star general equivalent right and it's still humbling to me to think that you know this little kid from augusta georgia is um somebody that people would listen to or look up to or or you know I don't there are words that one guy called me a legend and literally I, I my heart like skipped two or three beats and I'm like please don't ever let those words in my name come out in the same sentence well, again. let me ask you about that because yeah, you know it's you, uncomfortable not the legend part but the idea right. of, of was mentorship something that you took very seriously and was that something that's particularly when you reached the higher levels of CIA not just for African-American officers but right. across the board. I give you an idea. Um, Mary Legere, who was, was the G2, she was a three-star general in charge oh, of yeah. all Army intelligence. Yes, I... And that was some, she, she took it very seriously. Mm -hmm. The idea of women being in charge of Army intelligence was almost unheard of. And I can... I can oh, it was potentially, unheard of. Yeah, and I can potentially see where, you know, we, we now have a woman director of CIA, which is a huge step forward. Yes. But there haven't been a lot of people of color as deputy directors, and certainly hasn't been one of a directorship and anything else. You know, is that it, you got very high, not obviously right. the highest. Right. Uh, but did you look down at the people looking up at you and say, OK, come on? Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was that. So for me, you talked about whether it got less. Whether going up the chain made things less um, enjoyable for me, I just learned how to enjoy it in a different way. There is nothing like sitting across from someone playing a chess match and recruiting that, you know, that check intelligence officer or that you know al-qaeda terrorist or whoever it is that you're you're matched against that's the ultimate ultimate feeling but i learned that i got just as much enjoyment out of those people who were working for me doing that same thing and i'm like okay i don't this isn't about me anymore and i really did get as much pleasure seeing that kid who came in knowing nothing and then making it and doing doing things and so mentoring was huge and I wasn't able to do it because I was overseas from 1992 to 2010 I was gone for 18 years I was never back stateside where I could mm -hmm. really really make a difference so when they when we went to the uh, iconic training facility uh, in 2010 I made it a point of giving back and giving back me meant being part of the the DO, the Director of Operations Women's Council, of which I was one of the plank holders or one of the early, early folks involved. Uh, the DO African American Council, uh, the Black Executive Board. Um, I did um, mentoring through, so the agency paid, paid to train me as a, as a coach. So I learned how to be a coach. And the only thing that I asked was that I not have any clients that were from the DO because I needed to know more about the other directorates. Mm -hmm. And that was a par large part of what I did when I was, uh, when I was um, at the training facility as well. 
so I learned how to enjoy it through a whole different perspective, a whole different paradigm. And leadership is not anything that leaders don't sit around and think about being leaders. Good leaders sit around and think about how to help that person that might be struggling or that person who's who's a water walker. Because that's what I ran into in yeah. coaching. You had the high flyers who they everybody, oh, this this lady right here, she's going to be something, or this knucklehead right here, who we're never going to please somebody help us. It was almost never anyone in between. I got enjoyment out of helping both because I knew that I could help both because it's really about listening and perspective and changing people's attitudes or minds about things. Great. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Let's get back in the Wayback Machine and go to near the beginning of your CIA career. Mm -hmm. You served in Somalia. I did. Uh, Just after the Task Force Ranger Battle of Mogadishu incident, which has now been, uh, whether you've read about it or watched it in a movie, it's the Black Hawk Down incident. Absolutely. It would be tempting to think of that as too little too late or cleaning up the mess, but there was still very important work to be done even after oh, yeah. the military pulled out. So yep. let, me, let me ask you, what was your main focus as you went into Somalia immediately following that? So I was the most junior case officer to actually be allowed to go out in an operational capacity to Mogadishu. And that was only because I had been on the Somali working group desk for about four months before I went out in January, February of 1994. And of course, that was the last three months we pulled out on the 31st of uh, 31st of March. So I was there half of the, the the last three months that we were we were there. And my job was essentially to go out there and get ready for the next the next phase, get rid of those people that were, you know, basically just taking a paycheck and hold on to those folks in some capacity, figure out some way to to continue to meet with those folks that were out there. I don't think we ever truly left as the CIA. Um, Just like we never truly left Afghanistan and the Mm -hmm. way we were able to go back after 9-11 was because we had invested in sending people in and keeping contacts warm and making sure people understood that we're still there and we still care and all of that. Even when the rest of the world doesn't care, the CIA is in places, which is why our mobility and getting in uh, and setting up, you know, establishing networks is it's not it's not luck, people. It's not luck. It's. Someone sitting down and saying, okay, here's the next problem spot in the world. Who speaks this language? Who knows about this? Um, but when we closed our embassy in December of 1989 in Moog, there was that gap between, you know, all the, all the you know, warlords fighting, then the famine, and, of course, leading up through, through Black Hawk. I got to tell you that as a GS-9, which I was at the time, um, and go into meetings in Mogadishu in a helicopter. That's what people joined the CIA yeah. for. It was so surreal to actually be on the ground in a war zone, doing things that you knew either saved a life or averted a disaster, or you know could you know could lead to something uh, crazy or something really beautiful happening. And I enjoyed it. It was Mogadishu was probably one of those places that was 
the Black Hawk Down incident was just one day. And we were there long before that, and we've been there since that. And I know that's what people culturally can can connect with. But a lot of mistakes were made, but it was a lot of good that was done there as well and is still still being done there. Well, the fact that the the mission itself was greenlit meant that intelligence got us to a very high-level member of... You know the 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 warlord leadership there, right? You know, not the Faradid himself, but to, you know an underling. Obviously, the mission fails, but the fact that humans and other types of intelligence get mm-hmm. us to that point, yep, that that's something that's overlooked because of the the outcome of the actual operation. Right, exactly. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you. We know now a lot more about the role of people who would be founders of an organization that hadn't, didn't quite exist yet, but later become Al Qaeda. Right. How much did we know, or did the CIA know, in the the months following the Somalia incident, about how outside influences were involved in any of that? We knew that there were forces that we couldn't quite explain because Idid, as crafty and wily as he was, the level of coordination between the different um, warlords and the different clans was something that they had never seen before. So we didn't know exactly what it was. And then, of course, what became Al-Qaeda, they started bragging that this was the first, this was what Al-Qaeda viewed as their first, you know, black eye mm-hmm. um, for the U.S. intelligence or U.S. government. And I, I can't, in, in terms of months, I, I know within, I'd say within half a year, we had narrowed it down to the folks that were in there on the ground training at the same time that we were in country. Um, And we might have gotten some, I mean, I'm sure they've gone back and gone through everything and are able to identify. It's much easier in hindsight, right? It is always always easier in hindsight. And people need to understand that intelligence is not, we're not magicians. We take a whole bunch of information that we view as facts through corroboration and verification of other sources and we present them to the policymakers for them to make the make the decisions. We don't make the decisions. They say go forth, and we do it the best of our ability. But at the end of the day, information is just that. It's for you to use, however it is that you can use it, hopefully for good. And intelligence failures, the, the term intelligence failures, is thrown around a little bit too too much for my for my taste. Right. Um, because if you use the the same analogy that most people use, then every time there's a crime, it's a it's a law enforcement failure. I, I, I it just can't be that way. And yes, we've had failures, but I don't think Black Hawk Down was a CIA failure. Right. Well, let me let me ask you about the kind of I think back to the Sub-Saharan Africa issues in the 1990s, and this is when I started paying attention. I think a lot of the Americans started paying a lot more attention to what was going on in Sub-Saharan Africa because of things like Somalia and Black Hawk Down, because of the war, the civil war in Rwanda, mm-hmm. because of what was happening in Darfur and the Sudan. Right. A lot of people put a lot of blame on the Clinton administration that they were scared to death after Somalia, that they didn't do anything Right. when it came to Rwanda and Darfur later on. I wonder, you were on the ground. I mean, you mm-hmm. were there. Right. Uh, I'm wondering the perspective of someone on the ground during that time. Was there a role for outside forces, outside agencies, getting between the, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis? Was there a role earlier for outside getting involved in Sudan, between, you know, between North and South Sudan? Is it fair to blame an American administration or anyone else for not getting involved? Maybe the answer is yes. Right. But I, I, this is the first time I've sat across literally someone who was on the ground at right, the right. time. So I, I do want to ask you about those because, again, I was a college student and then I was in the military at the time going, why aren't we going in there? Mm-hmm. Right. We went into the Balkans to stop a civil war. Why didn't we go into Rwanda when right. more people were killed in Rwanda than were in the Balkans and much more disgustingly? Right. Yeah. It's Black History Month, <laughs> so I'm going to go there. Go there. Um Brown and black peoples throughout history have always not been as important as our European, um, you know, our European allies and partners. I think that's a mistake. 
I think the role that Africa has played in the Cold War between the bear and the eagle was significant. I think we're starting to see some of that again with China's expansion into Africa. But in, in terms of what you, what you asked, I, I did spend a little time in Burundi in the aftermath of the Hutu Tutsi uh, massacres. Uh, in fact, close to three months. No, more than three months. And I don't know if there was anything that could have been done on the Hutu Tutsi side of it. Um, Somalia, Clinton was not in the door. In, in fact, it was during the lame duck period of, you know, Clinton took office on the 20th of January and we pulled out on the 31st of, of March. He was handed from George Bush a, a huge problem and American blood in a country that most people couldn't, you know, couldn't find on a map. So he probably came in and said, you know, what, why am I going to start my time as, as president embroiled in a part of the world that we really don't care about? And right. let's go ahead and pull out. There's a lot of back and forth and a lot of politics, of course, that were involved, but you can't fault, you know, an administration not wanting to, you know, continue, um, you know, a, a failed policy or what was perceived as a failed policy. Um, I know a lot of people talk about in the mid-90s that the CIA had lost its way, you know, the, the bear had fallen and we just were floundering. We didn't see that in Africa Division. We didn't have time for that in Africa right. Division. And people who don't know how the agency is, is divided, but where I spent the lion's share of my career was on the African continent and not chasing Africans. We're chasing Russians and Chinese and North Koreans and Iranians and terrorists. That never stopped. That never stopped. It mm -hmm. never waned. Now, we didn't have, we knew who the enemy was. We knew who Russia was. But it was a whole lot harder not knowing who Al-Qaeda was, not knowing who all the different splinter groups that were out there were coming around. And it, I don't know, it was for me, it was like being a kid in a candy store. Russians are hard, they're hard targets for, you could spend your entire career at CIA and never engage a Russian in a meaningful way as a human collector. But that's not the case when you have all these other you know, all these other, you know, pieces of jewels that are out there that you can get to. So for me and for young officers, and I was, again, in the very beginning of my career, it was the best time for me between 95 and, and 2005. That was, that was, oh, I'm, I'm excited <laughs> just sitting here thinking about you, you, it. There's not a visual, but he, he just looks giddy. <laughs> He's just kind of giggling. G it's giddy. giddy. Yeah, giddy is probably right. Well, let me, let me so we haven't had anyone on the podcast since I've run it so over the last six years who can speak about African issues in any concrete or intelligent way. So forgive me for doing what so many others do that I rail on, rail on them when I speak of Africa as some kind of monolithic body. Right, exactly. Um, and not a continent full of dozens and dozens of independent states. However, I'd like to talk broad issues versus specific countries. I think you can probably talk a lot more mm -hmm. you know, from your ability to not have things classified to talk about broad things versus specific issues and in kind of doing the reading that <clears throat> excuse me that's led up to this conversation mm -hmm. i've tried to figure out what what are some of the big issues facing africa sub-saharan africa today almost universally looking at things like bad governance and corruption and that question of course goes to even if the agency is working very closely with or the united states government is working very closely with some of these countries if we can't get aid to the right people, and that's right. what we saw in Somalia, of course, exactly, then it's very difficult to us to engage directly mm -hmm. with these countries. Do you still see that as a key issue moving forward in Africa today? You know what? Not so much. So when I joined the agency in 1990, there were zero, literally zero examples of transfer of power from one African leader to another through the, through the ballot box. It just didn't happen. Coups, coups happened in two of the places that I lived in. I had a king die in a third, which of course leads up evil. These things happen all the time on all over the world. But if you look at today, Senegal, Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, 
and I know I'm missing some. They Ethiopia all, with Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, uh, right. who just got the Nobel Peace Prize. So you have hmm. all these countries that now have democratically elected leaderships and a transfer of power that was not a coup, that no one lost any lives. And it just, I think there's so much hope on that continent. And it's, I, I miss being in Africa. So I went back as chief of Africa division. I was traveling with the DDO, the deputy director of operations, and went back to, to East Africa and actually went back to my first, my first posting 22 years after the fact and went back to Mogadishu 22 years after being there. And it was good to see it from the perspective of a, you know, an adult, you know, a grown man looking at it strategically as opposed to being on the ground and doing it tactically. There's a lot of promise on that continent. There's a lot of money. The, the, human, the human potential of, you know, just Africa writ large. And, and I'm laughing because I had, I can't remember where I was, but this, this brother heard that I had lived in Africa. He's like, oh, you speak African. I was like, and I said, I said, I said, dude, do me a favor. Whatever you do, don't ever use that sentence again with yeah. anyone. So like, there's no such language. There's African, right? But there's no African language. And I think at the time I had just come from Nigeria, which has probably four or five hundred dialects. And oh my God, I don't know how many states they have in. But there's a lot of languages just within that one that one nation. And, you know, it's a former British colony, so of course we all spoke English. But everybody else there spoke three or four languages. Right. And not languages that I would understand or anyone, not many in the audience. Um, huge potential there. A lot more collaboration between us and the leaders of these countries. Uh, they know they know where we are and how we're coming out because it's not, you know, the Russians are going to give us this if the Americans. It's not that kind of thing. When I first got to Senegal, the Senegalese had just recognized Taiwan over China, hmm. which of course is a power play and a money play and right. all of this, and it's probably flipped back and forth a couple of times since then. So people were able to play one side off against the other. They couldn't do that in the aftermath in the, in the mid nineties when Russia was still basically they were, when they were broke. They were, they were broke. Yeah. It was a, it was a TKO and it took them a long time to recover, which, which leads to, uh, you know, a former KGB guy who never wants to revisit what that period was in their life and why he's so staunch and wanting to stay there thinking I'm, I'm the only one who can can do this. That's what every leader thinks. You know, Museveni in Uganda, and yes, I threw that out there because they're about to have an election, and he was one of the good guys who in the 80s pushed out this despot that had been there too long, and I believe he's coming close to being the person that he fought against. Right. But I've also met him. He is a fantastic leader. He is a very, very strong supporter of um, a lot of things that the United States needs, you know, on the, in the United Nations level, uh, LGBTQ issues aside. But he's a leader that hopefully will do the right thing. Well, I remember, to interrupt you, you mentioned people staying there too long. I re mm -hmm. If I recall, when Robert Mugabe came to power, right. he was like the future of Africa. He was someone mm -hmm. that, and then of course, that went straight to hell. Yes. As he got there longer and longer. And that, you know, Idi Amin, you know, get right. rid of him and then bring somebody else in who's yep. been there a little too long. Right. I think that's where kind of this peaceful transfer of power mm -hmm. in Ethiopia, again, is, you know, looking. The reason that he was given the, the Nobel Peace Prize is because, I mean, I grew up remembering We Are the World and Ethiopia right. starving and everything mm -hmm. else like that. And now they're the second most populous country. And it's like number one in Africa, GDP is growing like 10% a year wow. and it's got this people transfer. But that's what's interesting, I saw the statistic, about half of the world's fastest growing economies are in Africa, with 20 economies expected to grow at 5% or more over the next five years. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, you listed that most is, of them. That is fantastic yeah. news. But they're still, I mean, th th that's gonna run up into some of the issues that I wanna talk to mm -hmm. you about. 
of things like overpopulation, things right. like resource scarcity. Right. One thing that no one thinks about, well, not no one, most people are so focused on, they think resources, they think oil, right? Because right. we've been fighting for oil for the last hundred years. Water, arable, edible, you know, potable water mm -hmm. in Africa is where there's gonna be wars fought over that mm -hmm. in the future. And with climate change and that kind of yes. stuff happening, there's another interesting statistic, and this is that nine out of the ten countries in the world most vulnerable to climate change are in sub-Saharan Africa. I believe that nine out of ten, because the region has at least ten vulnerable coastal cities with a population of more than one million people, including Accra, Dakar, Durban, Lagos. Mm -hmm. That climate change is going to push people out right. of those areas, and there's not a lot of space already. Mm -hmm. And that, to me is if you don't have the infrastructure, if you don't have good populace, if you don't have good leadership, right? if corruption is there, it's kind of asking for it. Right. Um, I mean, I, th that to, you know, why aren't we paying more attention to this? I, I think corruption is inherent in, in most societies. No matter, you know, the, the mafia was able to be the mafia because they took advantage of Italian immigrants yeah. when they first to the United States. The Irish mafia took care, you know, took advantage of the, the Irish, you know, immigrants and so on and so on. Don't matter whether you're Vietnamese, Hmong, if you have a mafia or, you know, bad guys in your area, they're, they're coming after you first. What we've been able to do in Africa is the leaders are, are better. I mean, the communication and the information that's out there is just so... It's it's harder to hide. Mm -hmm. You can't do what people did when I walked in the door in 1990 because it's almost immediately going to be captured by somebody. And these leaders know that. And they can't, no matter you think you have complete control of your country, Saddam Hussein didn't have complete control of Iraq. Gaddafi didn't have complete control of Libya. But they... They had solid solid control that just doesn't um exist in the in the african context and I, I i never served south of the equator so mugabe was just a complete i, I never understood did you see the man yeah. he was frail how are you afraid of this 90 year old man he can hurt no one they were deathly afraid of him in my job as deputy director of ctc i would meet with the liaison folks who had come through everything from Austria to Zimbabwe, and, and I remember talking to the Zimbabweans just, you know, off the record, like, what? I'm not saying you should do one thing or another, but what is it about, M oh, you would talk about Mugabe like he was, like he was God. Well, Fidel Castro was somewhat of that. Afraid of, could, yeah, yes, yes. I mean, in some, in some of the Soviet leaders were half dead, yep. and they still <laughs> were able to and keep off power. was yeah. dead. <laughs> yeah. Right. What, what, so let me ask you this then. I mean, the, the idea of of educational standards now growing, which Correct. is fantastic. There's a massive amount of economic investment moving down there now. Some of it's the Chinese, which yes. is somewhat problematic, but the African Union is doing a pretty good job. Right. They are now running into some of the same kind of first world problems we are of having now homegrown terrorist organizations of Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram and others. That especially places like Kenya and Nairobi, these are these are top economies right. that are being slowed because of mm -hmm. not just this isn't just Muslim terrorism, but there's the idea of just terrorism writ large. Right. That has to be. I mean, I think that's why Africom was was beefed up. That's why mm -hmm. we shifted a lot of focus to that. Are you worried that that's going to slow down again? As the former deputy director of the Counterterrorism Center, as somebody who knows Africa better than anybody. Do you see terrorism as kind of a key issue that is going to slow down the ability of Africa to move into the 21st century? It won't stop it, but it'll definitely slow it. Those cities in Nigeria that are impacted by, and there was a, an Al-Shabaab attack um, where I read today, I think they burned 18 people that were in a caravan sleeping and just burned them alive where they were. Um, Al-Shabaab, oh, Boko Haram, I'm sorry, Boko Haram for, for Nigeria. Uh, Al-Shabaab has been, I've been chasing Al-Shabaab in some form since my time in, in, in Mogadishu. They don't have the power or they don't have the, uh, uh, 
they don't have the backing amongst the people in their own country. So they're limited to what they're going to be able to do. There's enough people inside Somalia now from, you know, Somalia, uh, Somaliland, all the way down to the Kenyan border. It's not just the Americans or just our Five Eye partners. You have the Turks that are in there. You have uh, Eastern Europeans. You have a lot of people who have their own, um, you know, ways of, of setting up programs for building schools or building um you know, sanitation system, taking care of the people because whether you were in the days of Moses or in the current days, if you take care of the people under your charge, they will they will back you. And when you have ISIS coming into places in Syria and doing better than what the Syrian government right. did, then these people are going to back ISIS. The same thing with Boko Haram. Right. The same thing with Al-Shabaab. The same thing with, you know, fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day... The people who get attracted to these groups, very small percentage of them are really hardcore bad people. These are people who just want to live through the day and want to connect with someone, who want to belong to something, who want to right. do something that um, you know that means something. And for them, it means within their religion. But one of the best discussions I ever had was a with a 90-year-old, um, uh, my girlfriend's mom, and she's a psychotherapist, very, very bright. And she's like, Daryl, tell me about this ISIS. And for about 45 minutes, she just asked the most interesting questions. And she was a World War II uh, Italian war bride who grew up with, you know, the Nazis marching around on the streets of Florence and her as a 16 to 19-year-old kid seeing all of this stuff. So she knows what, uh, what this can be. And I told her, I'm not worried because there's going to be someone who joined ISIS for their own purposes who's going to get to the theater and recognize that this is not what I signed on for. Yeah. I don't want to destroy you know, art that can never be replicated. I don't want to put people in cages and burn them alive. I don't want, I don't want anything to do with this, but now they're trapped. Right. But they're looking for an out. And they're looking for an out, whether they get recruited by a Kurd or an Iraqi or a CIA or a British MI6 or whoever happens to be there. And that person, because they're a part of ISIS, is going to get us to al-Baghdadi, mm -hmm. is going to get us to UBL, is going to get us to, you know, um, the leader of Boko Haram at the time... I, I don't know if he's still the leader. It's but like I think the, he was a, the number two was, guy at ISIS was like the world's shortest job because it was like they just died every every week. Actually, at yeah. Al Qaeda, it's the number yeah, three the number job. Three at Al Qaeda, you, you did not want that job. But BH Boko Haram has had so many different yep. leaders. They killed themselves. They yep. get killed by Western intelligence. Mm. So let me ask you this: the final question, kind of okay. the, the the big issue is Africa is one of the youngest populations, mm -hmm. uh, but by per capita, it's got a young potentially vibrant population that is going to know computers better than everybody else is going mm -hmm. to be able to be in the workforce for the next 50 years right is going to be able to change the infrastructure they can build roads they can build 5g internet everything else or if they have no jobs they can join Boko Haram it seems this crossroad period now more than ever before right it's similar to if you look at kind of the Palestinian question but this is now a continent that again, we don't want to. We want to group everybody together. It's not right. monolithic, but a lot of that Central African area with mm -hmm. all the fake country names, like the Central African Republic's not a republic, <laughs> and the Democratic Republic of Congo is not democratic or republic or anything else. But there are a lot of twenty-five-year-olds who are looking for something to do. Right. We're kind of a now or never. I mean, that's from my perspective. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to throw that in your direction. Do you see that the same way? Is this where the United States government and the Western economies should be just? dumping money and resources in Africa or are we if we don't are we really missing the boat is this now the only time that we can do this I, so this this the first thing that crossed my mind is my last uh, my between 2013 and 2015 I was in two different jobs at CIA headquarters one in the counterterrorism center and then and then heading Africa division and at the time there was a lot of discussion about the agency and doing modernization and making changes and how we were living in the worst time in the history of mankind. And I remember challenging the leadership and saying, I think there were 
two world wars and, mm. and a Korean war and a Vietnam war. And that's just the American wars. I don't think we're living in the worst possible time. We tend to think, oh my God, it's, it's now or never. People think that the issues that we're having as a nation now began in 2016. They did not begin in 2016. This administration is quite frankly, and I work for every president from Reagan to Trump, is not any any worse off than anybody right. else. It's just all about perspective. People, I'm, in a, I'm a trained intelligence officer. My job is not to take one side or the other. I don't care who the president is. When they walk into that job, they are so un, unprepared right. for the, the, the amount of danger that exists in this world. People ask me, what was the most dangerous? You don't want to know the most dangerous thing that I've seen. Or do- you don't. I'm telling you, you don't want to know. Well, Just- so I, I always <laughs> thought that when presidential elections, and I'm taking us on a tangent, but it's an important one. Presidential elections, there's two questions that no one ever answers honestly. The first is, how old were you when you knew you wanted to be president? Because every single one of them should say five years old. They're right. all like, well, when I saw the poor and whatever, you're full of shit. It's when you're five <laughs> years old. And the second question is, who do you think is most prepared to be president? And the answer to that is none of us. Right. Right. Literally no one standing up here is prepared to be president. No, not really. There's not a single person, even if you've been vice president, I not agree. a single person is in that big chair in that big office and, and it, understands and it matters. this. Yep. And it matters. And I think that, you know, the learning curve for everybody mm-hmm. is extreme. I don't care. You know, Obama was a constitutional lawyer. His learning curve is just as much as George yes. H.W. Bush, who was a CIA director. Correct. Because you go from being the, the briefer to the briefee and you're in a very right. different seat. Exactly. The 25-year-olds out there who are trying to figure out whether they're going to, you know, and it's not an either-or, I'm going to join a terrorist group or I'm going to, you know, design 6G if there is such a 7G, whatever the next G is going to be. But we are losing a lot of people. But now we now have close to 20 years of collaboration between um, the United States and, and its allies across the world on countering the homegrown, you know, terrorist, mm-hmm. whether it's here in the United States or whether it's in Belgium or whether it's in, in Jemina, it's really the same paradigm and the same process. Um, you're going to have to adapt it, of course, to the environment that you're in, but hope is a powerful thing. When people feel like their voices are not being heard, they act out. I don't care if you're if you're a if you got a toddler and you're not paying attention to that toddler, what are they gonna do? Yeah. They're gonna act out and they're gonna get your attention. It doesn't change. <laughs> you're still a toddler whether you're 30 or 80. There's a part of you that's still a toddler, and people want to be feel like they have like they have a say. Yeah. Like what I I matter, and that changes everything. The shirt that I have on today is one of the things I wanted to do in part of leadership after I got out was volunteer more. I have a very socially conscious children, daughter's a social worker. What are you, you know, what are you doing to give back that? What are you doing to give back? So I've worked with foster youth mm-hmm. and the most, the times where I get like that bright look in their eye, like that spark where they see that there's a possibility of them living beyond the craziness of their lives and they've lived None of them have good stories. These are children who have been taken away from families for reasons that have nothing to do with them. Right. But they're the ones that are trapped in it. But hope is a powerful thing. And hope is one of those things that I think can spread across any language, across any culture, across any year, week, decade. And hope has to be, uh, you know, not, not the whole keep hope alive, all that. Yeah. None of that. Just give people a reason not to join a terrorist group. Nobody, it's not, if you want to join a terrorist group, there's nothing that any of us going to do to stop you. It's those fringe guys. It's those ones who are trying to figure out where they fit in life. And if they feel like they're never going to fit anywhere in whatever world they're growing up in, they're going to be recruited in the same way that I recruited by people who have, you know, nefarious intentions. Well, Daryl, we really appreciate you taking the time today. I mean, I'm looking forward to, to talking to you for a while once we, we scheduled you to come to the museum <laughs> for other things. I'm like, I got to get that. I got to get Daryl to come in. So we truly appreciate your time, uh, the fascinating conversation. Uh, again, I apologize for 
for treating Africa as one big country. No. Uh, we didn't have time to break it down. No, nope. um, that's, that's fine. Uh, and again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.